chapters 3 and 4. It's going to be a Smokey and the Bandit lesson. We have a long ways to go and a short time to get there. Open your Bibles. Chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay? So open up a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. There's one right in front of you in the pew in front of you. Just open it up. Acts is nine-tenths of the way through the Bible. It's easy to find. Fortress or posse. I'm getting ahead of myself. Imagine that, Anna. Today we're asking ourselves, does your church look more like a fortress or a posse? Lyle Scheller proposed that most churches either look like a fortress or they look like a posse. And you're either going to have that mentality. Maybe your church shouldn't be all of a fortress or all of a posse, but it's going to be predominantly a fortress or a posse mentality. So let's look at that. First, let's look at what does a posse look like? Well, you remember your old Western movies? They're deputized, given authority by one, right? There was a sheriff in town, and he deputized them, and the posse went out. They only have one thing in common, right? They're going to right a wrong or fix an injustice or put down evil. They may not have anything culturally, socially, racially, or politically in common. But what they do have in common is that they're going to put down some evil out there, right? They're loosely organized, but they have a mission. Not much organization, not a lot of administration, but they got a mission. And they feel like they've got to get with it right then. You never see the posse saying, oh, well, let's wait around. Tell you what, they've, they've stolen Julie and the dog Lassie. And so next week about this time, let's get together and let's go after them. No. It was usually done by, by torchlight, right? They got together. They had a sense of immediacy about them. It had to be done then. It had to be begun right then. Abundance mentality. You see, a posse has an idea that God's always going to provide. That they're on the right side of things and they're just going to go after it. No matter what the odds look like or how, how bad or how, how hard this looks, they've got an idea that God's on their side and that he will provide. And their focus was mainly outward. They're always looking outward. And then you have the fortress. Interested in building up walls, right? In the fortress mentality. Have you been in those churches? Protect what's on the inside. Focused about who's in and who's out and spend a whole lot of time, Rick, talking about who's in and who's out. Worried about forms and methods and administration. They've got a scarcity mentality. There's never quite enough. And their focus was mainly inward and predominantly exclusive. 
So I told you I'd give you a little geography, a little history, and then tell you the story each week. So here's our geography. We're still in Jerusalem. Little interesting facts about Jerusalem. It's 35 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It's 15 miles west of the Dead Sea. And it's at the elevation of 2,600 feet. And then the Dead Sea is at an elevation of 1,400 feet. So what it looks like it is a top of a loaf of bread baked the old-fashioned way, right? That's had butter poured right down the middle of it. Well, it does. It has the Jordan River. So the Gal- Sea of Galilee flows out down the river valley right down into the Dead Sea. And all of this is below sea level which creates some interesting weather that we see in other parts of the New Testament. So there's a little geography for you. How about a little history? The city of Jerusalem was taken in, was taken over 4,000, excuse me, the city of Jerusalem is 4,000 years old. That makes it one of the oldest, only probably second to Damascus and Jericho. They're probably the only two older cities that we know about, older than Jerusalem. David captured it in a stronghold, which at the time was called Zion, from the Jebusites around 1000 B.C. So Jewish occupation of Jerusalem, dominance over it, has been since 1000 B.C. And we see that in 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 12. We're getting ready to study that story on a Wednesday night here soon. David planned the building of the temple on the same stronghold and his son Solomon made it a reality about 40 years later. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And then just about 70 years later, during the reign of Cyrus the Great, they rebuilt the temple in 516 BC. The second temple was much less impressive than Solomon's first temple. In Ezra 3 and 12, the people have come back and they lay the foundations of the first, uh, they lay the foundations for the second temple. And when they do, the people, the older people who had seen Solomon's temple being built, started crying and moaning and mourning because they said it'll never be the same. They're going to build a temple. It'll never be the same as Solomon's. It's too small. We know the resources Solomon had. We know the resources we have now. And they started crying because it was not going to be the same splendor. Well, in the year 19 AD, Herod the Great started to enhance and build up the temple to its former glory. He wanted to rebuild it so it had the same type of glory that it had in Solomon's time. So in 19 B.C., he starts refurbishing and rebuilding the temple. Josephus records that it took took 10,000 skilled laborers to make the kind of adjustments that they wanted to see in this new temple. Now, I say it's new. Keep in mind, it was never demolished it was just built up matter of fact they had to they had to train a thousand levites and special skills to develop and build up the temple because while it was being built it never stopped as a temple worship never stopped there so if they needed something to go on in a holy place then they took these levites outside they gave them the special skills sent them back in and let them build all while the worship was going on 
these are the original part of Herod's ste- the steps that Herod would have built to the temple. I find them very interesting. Do you note, none of them are even. They're all odd. They're none the same. None of them are the same width or height. Now, they had the knowledge how to build straight steps, okay? So why the unevenness? The thought is you didn't go rushing into worship. You had to think about what you were doing when you went to worship. And these steps were to slow you down so you might be in the right attitude by the time you reached the temple gates. This is some of the tile that they, would, that they have found in Herod's, from Herod's temple floor, okay? These are marble tiles, and they have found these in the last 25 years as they've uh, gone through the rubble of the old temple, and they've pieced these back together. So when it says in Scripture today it was the beautiful gate, Josephus says that this gate was completely covered in gold and bronze and that the sun would shine on it. And when people would go through it, they would comment on how beautiful the gate was. There was nothing spared in the temple. This is the only thing left. This is the western wall. In 70 AD, they tore the the temple completely down, destroyed all of it except for this one wall. And in this wall, you can see a divider between the two. On the over on one side, the small one-third side, that's where the women were allowed to pray. And over on the other side, that is where the men were allowed to pray. It was not until last year that it was legal for both men and women to pray together at this wall for the Jewish faith. It's interesting, the big stones at the bottom are Herodian stones. Then the next set of stones were laid in 650 A.D., by Muslims. And then on top of that, there was an Ottoman sultan that in 1535 laid in more stones. What I find interesting is, is that when we didn't have technology, they used the largest stones. And then as technology increased, uh, the stones get smaller. But the wall itself in the Herodian days was probably only to about right there. Well, here's what Jerusalem probably looked at. This is a model from A.D. 33, what Jerusalem would have looked at. So as we focus down on the temple, let me ask you, does that look like a posse church or a fortress church? Fortress church, doesn't it? Matter of fact, right here, that was called Antonio's Fortress And that's where Roman guards were. This was a fortress, right? It was built much the same way as any fortress of the day. But we see their attitudes. Now we're in to chapter 3. Open up your Bibles. Peter and John went into the temple one afternoon to take part in a 3 o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple... A man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the other people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter in, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, 
And Peter said, look at us. Do you see that? Peter sees, Peter and John see someone in need, and they recognize them. They look at them. They don't just pass by. They don't look the other way. They don't turn a blind eye to him. They look at him, and they recognize him. And Peter says, look at me. Look at us. The layman looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter says, I I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking and leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising Then they realized this was the lame beggar that they'd seen so often at the beautiful gate. They were absolutely astounded. They all rushed in out of amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding on tightly to Peter and John. I love the look of this. This guy's been healed. It's a complete miracle because now he's jumping, he's walking around, he's praising God, and who's he got hold of? Peter and John, he's not going to let him go. Peter saw his opportunity to, opportunity to address the crowd. He's a great preacher, isn't he? Every opportunity he sees starts preaching. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though... We had made this man walk on our own power or godliness. For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the God of our ancestors who has brought the glory to this servant Jesus by doing this. Instantly, Peter instantly notices that people are looking at him and thinking he did this. So what does he do? He says, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This is about Jesus. Now, this is not a new religion. This, is, this has happened by your God from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You remember those guys? This is the power of that God working through Jesus, the Son of God. He's pointing to Jesus. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and Instead, demanded the release of the murderer. You killed the author of life. Boy, Andrea, you want to get somebody's attention? Call him a murderer. I imagine you could hear a pin drop after he just told them that they, were, that they killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of that fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. You know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus has made him heal before your very eyes. Friends, I realize what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God is fulfilling what all the prophets foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer all things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Thus, then, the times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus to your appointed Messiah. Have you ever thought about that? Sharing Jesus with others allows them to have times of refreshing. 
For he must remain until heaven, until time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up before you a prophet like me from among your own. Listen carefully everything he tells you. Then Moses also said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what has been happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up your servant Jesus, he sent him first to you, the people of Israel, to bless you by turning each of you back from your own sinful ways. While Peter and John were speaking, the people were confronted. Now look at this. A posse crowd they're watching they're looking and they notice while Peter and John were speaking to the people they were confronted by the priest the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees these leaders were very disturbed what Pe- Peter and John were teaching the people through Jesus there was resurrection of the dead can you imagine that have you ever been in a worship service that needed a captain of the guard that needed somebody to come over and say, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Stop that. We don't preach that in here. Well, they threw him, they threw him into jail. They arrested them. And since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of believers totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Does this sound like much vetting went on? Oh, let me talk to you for a minute and see if you're worthy of being into this new posse. Do we see a lot of doctrinal issues being talked about here with this adding of 2,000 more people onto the 3,000? And this was just men. We're just talking about men. So there's more than 5,000 in the church by now. There's also women and children that are in the church that we don't count yet. Any discussions about who's deserving and who wasn't? No talk about, about how you get dressed up and come into the temple? I mean, Peter was so poor and John were so poor that obviously that they, they thought the beggar ought to look at them and tell they didn't have any gold or silver, right? They're not wearing Armani into the temple. So that doesn't seem to be an issue about being in this posse. No, what they're talking about is, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Will you repent of your sins? Will you submit in water baptism? High five, you're in the posse. And they moved on. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Ananias and the priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other relatives of the high priest. They brought in two disciples and demanded, By what power or whose name have you done this? So they bring in two people, James and John. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want, can I tell you, Peter's a little sassy, okay? Do you want me to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state it to you and to all the people of Israel. He was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
Man, we're already up to number three in Peter saying, this is done by the name of Jesus. He's always pointing towards Jesus. The man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one who referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone you builders have rejected have now become the cornerstone. There's a salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which it must be saved. The members of the council were amazed, for they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in scriptures. Hmm. Looks like I'm still on the hook to be a witness to the whole world. Just because you don't have any special training, just because you, didn't, you weren't raised up or didn't go to Harding or ACU or Oklahoma Christian or whatever your favorite Christian college is, looks like you're not off the hook for not being a witness to the world. Ordinary men, no special training. They also recognized these are the men who'd been with Jesus. But since they could see the man whom had been healed standing right there among them, There was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked. We cannot deny that they have performed a miraculous sign. Everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak about this one named Jesus again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them again, never speak or teach in the name of Jesus Here comes sassy Peter. But Peter replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? Well, I bet bet that's one of those cricket moments, right? We cannot tell him. We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further. But they finally let them go because they didn't know what, how to punish them without starting a riot. It's not that they thought that they shouldn't be punished, but they're so afraid of the crowd that they won't start a riot. And why? For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the, heal, the healing of the man who had been lame for more than 40 years. This guy is standing right beside him. This guy who was... This guy who was a cripple for 40 years is there, standing before the Sanhedrin, 72 men, taking the heat. He's there in their presence. He's standing up for this one called Jesus. He knows where his miraculous healing came from, and he's going to stand. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voice together in God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth and sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle, and rulers gather together against the Lord and against the Messiah. In fact, he's still praying. In fact, you ever been part of one of these prayers where they started preaching right in the middle of it? Me too. In fact, this has happened here in this very city for Herod Antipodes, Pontius Pilate, the governor of of the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant whom you've anointed. But everything 
but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. What he's saying is we see the providence of God has been working the whole time. And it's gone just like you said it would go, God. And now, O Lord, hear the threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching the word. Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to preach the word of God with boldness. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that they had nothing. i got to get this right because this is important because this is the third time we've seen this. And they felt that they owned, that they, <laughs> and they felt what they owned was not their own. That goes so against my Western culture, I can't even read it right. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them. And there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money and the apostles to give to those in need. Folks, just a few things and the sermon will be over. God uses people who? God uses people who don't obsess on their past failures. Who's who's Christ working through, predominantly working through, in chapters 3 and 4? It's Peter, right? You remember Peter? Peter, the one that denied Christ just a few weeks earlier, probably about 60 days ago, who was the lowest of the low of apostles, who didn't understand that Jesus was going to have to die and be resurrected, this failure, and who's standing beside him? John, John, the one that probably ran off in the garden and left Christ alone. But they don't focus on their failures. They don't, they're not defined by their mistakes. They're looking forward. Can I tell you this morning, have you made a lot of mistakes? Because that's not God, how God wants you to see yourself. He doesn't want you to define yourself by your biggest mistakes. He doesn't want you to obsess on your past failures. He wants you to look on to the future. God uses people who see the needs around them. Peter and John could have walked right past that beggar, just like hundreds of people would do that day, but he doesn't. He looks right at them, and he connects with them. And he says to the to the beggar, I see you. I recognize you. Isn't that what we all want in life? To be recognized, to be valued, to be loved? When are we going to see those around us who need to be recognized? Who need someone to just stop and look directly at them and say, I see you. I know who you are. I want to know who you are. You're a value. They don't focus on what they don't have. Peter could have gone, you know, we don't have any silver. We don't have any gold. Have a nice day. 
But that's not what he does. You see, he has the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living in him. And you have that same spirit within you today, right? You have the Holy Spirit within you. Often, we say, I don't have any gold or silver. I don't really have any money, so we don't give it away. And the kindest thing, really, that you could do for that person is to recognize them and to fellowship with them and hang out with them and give them love and affection and be tender with them. I got to tell you, we're in, the, we're in the top 2% of the whole world for gold and silver, okay? So I have a hard time saying this morning to a church that is predominantly wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world that we don't have some gold and silver to share, okay? But then some of us here lately, and I see this all throughout the church, okay? So it's not just here, it's all throughout the church universally. I see people saying, well, I stopped giving to those people because it was an enabling those people. Okay, I'm fine with that. Sometimes you don't need to be an enabler. And sometimes just by giving people money, you are an enabler. But can I ask, so I understand why you kept quit giving them money, but why did you quit stopping and going and seeing them? Why did you quit calling them on the phone? Why'd you quit hanging out with them? Why'd you quit encouraging them? Was it because you bought into this Western culture thing that thinks that money is the best way to help people? God uses people who make it all about Jesus. At least in five times. If you're highlighting your Bible, you should have at least five highlights in there where Peter recognizes and points towards Jesus Christ. God uses people who make it all about Jesus. God uses people who make a stand. I love this guy, this beggar. He makes a stand. He's there in the court. He could have jumped up and ran away, but he realizes the gift given. Would we stand more often for Christ if we realize the gift given to us? We're so worried about being politically correct that sometimes we don't stand when we should. Now, I'm not talking about being coarse, disruptive, mean-spirited. I'm talking about taking a stand for Christ. When he says something's wrong, we stand up and say, no, that's wrong. That's morally, ethically wrong. And I have a true truth, and I find it right here. And sometimes i got to tell you, that's going to be very uncomfortable. And it's going to go against political correctness. This guy got his ankles and his feet repaired. Sometimes I think we need a new back, right? A new spine. God uses people who pray big prayers. If you've been sleeping, mentally sleeping here, this is the time to arise and listen. People who pray big prayers get big prayers answered. What do we usually pray for in our prayers? Health, efficiency, and security, right? 
Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for that, Rick. I want to pray for your knees, brother. But let's challenge God a little, right? But let's not be so scared that our whole prayer is about security. Because I tell you, if you want security, you're going to be in the what church? The fortress church, right? If you're going to live dangerously, man, going out on a posse, Mike, that's dangerous. That's going to be challenging. Let's pray some really big prayers. Let's look at this big prayer of theirs. They prayed for great boldness in preaching the word and healing power for miracles and signs and wonders to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I got to ask you this morning, do you still think he does miraculous things, wondrous things? I do. I see it all the time. I see the power of Jesus through the Spirit constantly healing people's broken hearts. I see him doing marvelous, wonderful things in dysfunctional families that you never thought would work and bringing them together and bringing them a sense of peace that they never had before. I see marvelous, splendid things in God repairing ruptured relationships that you never thought would heal over, but through the power of Christ is. Unfortunately, our Bibles are divided right there, and they start a new section. And sometimes we don't read the new section the way I think we ought to read the section. After this prayer, and the meeting place shook, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they, were, and they preached the word with God in boldness. There's one answered prayer. All the believers were united in heart and mind. They had unity. Can I tell you, that's a miraculous thing. I worked in the church. Unity. Unity comes through the Spirit. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. Boy, you talk about marvelous and miraculous. I live in Western culture. Nobody has that thought. The apostles testified and powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God. Great blessings was upon them. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. See, I think that's the answer to the prayer. I think that's the marvelous, wonderful healing and power. And there you see it being answered. Can we do it again? Can it happen again? Can we be this fortress church or this posse church? Will we be a fortress church? Can I tell you, if you've been a part of a fortress church and a tyrant preacher or a tyrant eldership, I apologize. That's not how it's meant to be. We're meant to look more like a posse who go put down evil, right? So, 
We're going to choose five souls. We're going to pray for them. We're going to fellowship and share with them. We're going to care for them. We're going to invite them to worship and be a part of our family. And we're going to start praying big prayers. We're going to start challenging God to add to our numbers and help us be bold in preaching and teaching and unite us together in unity through the Spirit. I'm going to ask you to stand, please. Raise your right hand. If you're in the body of Christ, raise your right hand. Repeat after me. I will be a witness for Jesus until the ends of the earth. Welcome to the posse.